This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. It's Friday, February 9th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And let's play the pyramid, not the $25,000 or $100,000 pyramid, the $300 million budget pyramid. Morea College in Kentucky. Uh, places that offer a minor in Appalachian studies. Uh, alma mater of the guy who played Uncle Jesse on the Dukes of Hazard. Morea College, Kentucky Community and Technical College. Institutions of higher learning that don't have Quidditch teams. No! Colleges in the home state of Mitch McConnell that got targeted financial breaks in the budget deal. All right, next up, rum, uh, things that get you drunk, racehorses, um, things a 1930 movie mogul would want, rum, racehorses, the repeal of Obamacare's independent payment advisory board, things that only a drunk person would say, no, also initiatives in the $300 million budget deal. Some benefits going to rum and the racehorses, and yes, they are repealing the Independent Payment Advisory Board. By the way, that will cost money, the supposed death panel. All right, next up, fish. Uh, beloved Abe Vigoda characters. Cattle. I don't know. Fish. Uh, elements of surf and turf. Fish. Cattle. Honeybees. Uh, surf and turf with a demi-glaze. Fish. Cattle. Honeybees. Uh, terrible pets for a child. No! Example of animals whose owners are getting financial consideration in the new budget deal. All right, up next, Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. A zombie. Democracy these days. Oh, things that have died just a little bit. Correct. Finally, a special congressional committee to tackle budgetary dysfunction. Um, the most ironic provision of the 2018 budget? Ding, 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 ding! On the show today, not the pyramid, our show, this one, right here. I've been watching the Olympics, and I've been thinking about politics, and I'm going to tell you about the overlap. But first, so as part of that budget deal, there will be a deficit, shall we say exploding? That word doth cut both ways, doth it not? But yeah, it's going to add mightily to the deficit, and that's been weighing on me mightily. And when I have a mighty weight, only a mighty man could lift it. Joining us up next, Adam Davidson of The New Yorker to talk deficits and consequences. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
I think there is a deficit in public discourse when it comes to the understanding of deficits. I think we have a debt debt. So to clear this up, and it's been annoying me so much in the last 24 hours, to clear this up is my guru, my economic sage, Adam Davidson. He is a staff writer for The New Yorker. Yep. He covers economics issues. Yep. Yeah. Hey, Adam. How are you? Hey, Mike. Great to be here. So... The new bill that has passed will add a lot of money to the deficit. I want to start basically. I often hear the criticism that we have an unsustainable debt or our debt is uh, not something that you'll hear a governor saying, I balance my budget, well, because they have to. Or you heard Sarah Palin saying, if we were a family, we couldn't live with a debt. And yet all nations have debt. Is that a flaw or is that a feature? It can be a feature, and it's not – the household analogy is always wrong because we control our money. We control the dollar, and our debts are in dollars for the most part. And so that's just something families wouldn't have. Now, there are countries like Greece – Even the Mnuchin family? Because I saw those pictures. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, the Mnuchin bucks are doing very well. But like a country like Greece – where it's the euro and they can't control the euro and they're a very small part of the euro, they're in a lot of trouble. Or a country but they have it's not just that they have debt, they have a tremendous amount of debt. And they have a tremendous yeah. amount of debt. Yeah. Or a country like Argentina or in an extreme case Zimbabwe where their currency has very little value internationally, so their debts are in dollars. Yes. So they're it's not the household analogy is never right, but it's closer to right. But for us, it's truly not right. But I even look at Norway, which is the most healthy economy on earth, and everyone in Norway, if they you know took a share of their national pie, would get I think the last time I calculated a couple of weeks ago, one hundred ninety thousand dollars. They have debt. They have a national debt. It amounts to something like 29% of GDP. If it was just flat out bad to have debt... It is not bad to have debt. Tomorrow, Norway could wipe it out. So generally, we measure a country's debt as a percentage of GDP, as you just said. So GDP is the economic activity within a year in that country and that country's money. So in the US, it's 17 trillion, something like that. And generally, like easily... I'm going to use very rough numbers and some of this can start a fight, but up to 60% of debt to GDP is considered, I mean, that's just nothing. That truly doesn't matter. 60 to 100% is, you know, you're getting into an area where under certain conditions, you could imagine that being problematic, but it's not a guarantee. Over 100%, that's just increasingly so. Japan famously has had debt of over 200% forever. Mm -hmm. Some economists think it's or many economists think it's very important to look at who owns the debt. So if people within your economy, like within like Japan America, has a lot yeah. of debt that they owe the money to Japanese people, that's considered much less risky than if it's mostly foreigners who own the debt. But that being said, there was a little bit of nonsense a few years ago about 90% is this magic number. That Nobody believes that, including the There are no who, magic numbers. There are there no seem, magic numbers. There seem to be thresholds, and this latest bill that has just passed will, according to estimates, put us over 100. The debt will amount to more than 100% of our gross domestic product, which is uh, you know the forecast of our gross domestic product in the future. Yeah, and it gets a little complicated, and who really knows, but if the additional spending is only for the two years of this bill, then we'll be at 99%. If that's those spending programs continue, as they usually do, yeah, hard to stop them. then it'll go well above 109% by 2027. So there's no reason to think 99% is fine and 109 is bad. 
I think what is maddening about this moment, what is truly maddening, like what in the world is happening, is <laughs> the the one time you definitely expand the deficit and increase the debt. So deficit is money in this year that we owe. Yes. Debt is how much we owe altogether over the last many years is when you're in a financial a deep recession, when you're in a deep recession. You spend and your way out of you it. Spend you your stimulate way, the economy. You stimulate the economy. And – you know, we did have a eight hundred plus billion dollar stimulus, you know, in the first year of Obama's administration, but we weren't able to go for the two to two and a half trillion dollars over a few years that most people thought we needed because Republicans said, Well, no, that'll increase the debt, that'll increase the deficit. You can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And here we have the economy is recovering and we're having this massive tax cut that's going to add one, one to two trillion dollars uh, to our debt. That's a huge, that's stimulus. A huge stimulus, and we're going to add this spending bill that's going to add an additional trillion, trillion and a half dollars to our deficit. It's from an objective policy standpoint, this is insane. It's there is no economic theory that would tell you to do this. I mean, the classic. Chicago School Milton Friedman economic theory is don't do anything short term at all. The right. only changes that that can have an impact are permanent changes, which would mean having tax cuts that are sensible enough that you have confidence that future Congresses won't repeal them and having a debt picture that is stable enough that you aren't going to panic everybody into imagining, oh, my goodness, at some point we're going to have to pay this back. And in fact, you can overstimulate the economy. And if you were to overstimulate the economy, you would see things like, I don't know, the Dow plunging a thousand points a day. You can very much overstimulate an economy. And what that means, it sounds like a weird thing, especially after right. the decade we've just been through. But when unemployment is high, there's lots of people who aren't working enough. There's lots of factories that aren't being used to maximum productivity. There's lots of, I mean, you only do a day one daily radio show. You yeah. could easily do three or four. <laughs> when you have underutilized people, capital, labor, machinery, you know, et cetera, then spending money, hopefully, will get those people back to work. And that makes a lot of sense. When you're close to full employment, and no one knows exactly what full employment is, but 4.1% unemployment is certainly in that direction. People always say three or four. Yeah. I mean, it's a theoretical number. Yeah. and it, It's uh, like the 90 number. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but it's not. But the point is, it's not zero. It's not zero. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's always going to be people in between jobs, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and if the factories are pretty much doing as much as they can, and and investors are investing as much as they can, then any additional money injecting another trillion or two into the economy, it has to go somewhere. So what it does is ends up going to workers in higher wages, which is not the worst thing in the world. Right. I mean, that that's something we could really use. Those workers start having more money. They start buying more goods. Those goods start getting more expensive. The factories are fighting over the same amount of raw materials. So those prices start going up. And basically, you get inflation. And inflation can very quickly eat away at that new wealth that the workers have and eventually can cause a recession, especially if you have a thoughtful Federal Reserve, which I think we do, which will see this coming and say, no way, we're putting the brakes on this. We're going to raise interest rates much more quickly. There is absolutely no economic theory that would encourage this kind of behavior right now. There is right-wing conservative economic theory that would have encouraged 
not stimulating 10 years ago, but that would not encourage this. This right. is madness. It's just one more piece of evidence that there is no intellectually coherent fiscal conservative party in America right now. And in your answer, you laid out why it's not the case that Democrats are being hypocritical because the charge is, oh, during the Obama era, you wanted to take on debt, but now you don't. That's not hypocritical. You just laid out the case like during the Obama era, the first year of the Obama era was the time to stimulate the economy. That's the time you bite the bullet, essentially. Now is not the time. So that means, I mean, is there any case other than the Republicans really are being hypocritical to rail against debt during a downturn, but yet to want to take it on and to give tax cuts during this these boon economic times? This is completely, insanely hypocritical. Of the tax bill and this budget bill, which is the more irresponsible and why? I mean, I guess I would go with the tax bill being more irresponsible because it truly is addressing no need. It is a massive giveaway to rich people. Even if you want to give them the corporate cuts as like, okay, I can see why that would be a good thing. The way the corporate cuts were written were terrible. And then throwing, just randomly throwing in health, you know, repealing the individual mandate. So that I think the tax cut is it's one of the least responsible pieces of economic policy in a long time. Does this that... at least has the advantage. We now have government funded for two years. We don't have this silly season. I don't know. But they're both... You know, they come together and they're pretty bad. Does the fact that Rand Paul, who had this mini shutdown, he shut the, the government down during the hour and a half, it was going to be shut down anyway, but he did it in the name. He was the one guy who was trying to ride herd on runaway budgets. Does the fact that he voted for the one and a half trillion dollar increase in the tax cuts, does that make him a hypocrite? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How does yeah. he, how does he, I've heard him interview, so what he'll say is the tax cuts will expand the economy. So if you're talking about debt to GDP ratio, it'll make the GDP so much better that the ratio won't be as bad. It's just that no economist would look at the, the effect of those tax cuts and say that. Literally no, yeah. including the Joint Committee on Taxation, the, which the Republicans. You What's know, the joint in it? Half the is. Half yeah, is, yeah, yeah. yeah. So literally no analysis that had any you know, numbers and credible economists in it saw this as doing anything other than dramatically adding to the deficit. And other than the fact that we have to service our debt, which is dollars that could be spent on whatever you think they should be spent on, has to go down to paying our debt. What is the downside of debt? I mean, th there are downsides to debt. So, so one downside to debt is, as you said, we have to pay for it. The other problem with debt is just the more debt you have, the less debt you can take on without causing a problem. So mm -hmm. if you're at a 60 to 70% debt to GDP ratio, you feel like you have some headroom. Like we could really take on 20%, 30% debt as we have. And that's okay. We're, we'll be all right. But if you're at 100%, then you're not going to feel like you have the same kind of headroom because you worry. And the higher that number goes, the higher your debt goes, the more 
at risk you are to sudden shifts. So just think how different the global economy is today than it was 12 years ago. 12 years ago, there was serious conversation about the euro overtaking the dollar as the global currency. There was even talk of the Chinese renminbi taking over the dollar. China, you know, there's still people like Steve Bannon who are freaked out about China, but people were really freaked out about China 12 years ago in a kind of red dawn, like, you know, Japan in the early 90s kind of way. Global economies change in dramatic ways in a short period of time. And we don't quite know where we're going in the next 10 or 15 years. Right now, we probably are the economy you'd bet on. I mean, we, we probably are the strongest. But if things change in some dramatic way, for example, if we cancel a lot of trade deals, if we foster inadvertently the development of a kind of non-U.S. global trading system or at least a bunch of regional trading yeah. systems so that Trump exclude us. Trump gets to pursue his agenda yeah. to fruition. Yeah. yeah. Then, you know, we just have less maneuverability when we have this debt overhang. I'm not a debt. I'm not terrified of the debt. I'm okay with the debt. But now is not the time to be dramatically adding to the debt for no reason. Most of the time when people talk about the debt and the threat of the debt, they talk about a future, a, a dystopic future that could happen. I'll ask it this way. If we had the debt under control and if it wasn't at the levels it is now, how might the future be better? The biggest way the future would be better is something we just can't picture. I mean, we, we can say with near assurance that in the next 10 or 20 years, there's going to be some kind of financial economic crisis. Whoever's in power then will have less, a, a much smaller range of options in response. So imagine the now. next Great Recession becoming the Great Depression or lasting even longer. Right, or the next yeah. mild recession becoming a Great Recession or yeah. whatever. Yeah, because so of this, because of, of the decisions of we're making. Because yeah. of the decisions we're making now. I would say another thing is one of the big debates is what caused rising inequality? You know, was it policy decisions? Did basically rich people hire Ronald Reagan to steal poor people's money and give mm -hmm. it to them? Or was it um, just a natural outgrowth of a more global economy, a computerized economy where people with more education, more skill are just going to make more money and people with less are just going to make less? And the answer, I think, I mean, I've spent the number one thing I've thought about for the last 10 years is this, and I, I think the answer really is both. It really is both. We needed a real policy adjustment to fight inequality. And I, I think the Brexit vote, the Trump vote, these these tell us why inequality, in my view, can have real-world very dangerous effects on our body politic. I think they also have very dangerous economic effects. I mean, they, an economy that has rising inequality is a less stable, more dangerous, poorer country overall. And so we really needed a response. And I, you know, I think Hillary Clinton, you know, really failed to articulate a response. And the Democratic Party has still failed to articulate a response. Trump has articulated a very incoherent response about trade policy and immigrants and um, that, that makes, you know, that is not consistent with any economic data or anything, but, but seems to have found an audience. But meanwhile, there's all this yelling going on. But the argument over what caused inequality, did rich people steal the money or did it just, did they get it kind of in a fair way because of how the economy changed? That argument is now over. Rich people are stealing the money. We have- These policies- These policies are rich, are people, rich stealing people stealing the money. There's no argument about yeah. it. And, yeah. And there is going to be, this will add to inequality rather than fight against inequality. And that is, I mean- 
we are going to be paying for, yeah. you know, I think Milo and Emmett and Ash are going to be paying this price for decades to come. That's your two sons and my son. Yeah. Just yeah. In That's case context for people who don't know our kids personally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just poor, poor people. Yeah. <laughs> well, Adam Davidson, writer for The New Yorker, economics guru, we are in your debt. And if I say that to inflate your ego, it's only to pay down that debt. Thank, thank you. Thank you thank so you, much. Thank you. And now the spiel. So I've been switching from the C-SPAN to the CNN to the NBC to the CNBC, curling, little boring, back to the C-SPAN, better than curling, little MSNBC, little NBC. And as I watch the Olympics, specifically a lot of ice dancing and ice skating, pairs, loving the pairs, I've been thinking a lot about politics in the world we live in. Okay, pair skating and Obamacare both feature death spirals. One's a good thing and one's a bad thing depending on context. Fun fact, the death spiral in ice skating features shoot the duck, whereas that was more a characteristic of the Bush-Cheney administration. Now, in ice skating, the announcers will often tell you if the thing that happened was actually a good thing, because it always seems like a good thing. Okay, not when they fall on their face. But a skater will jump in the air, spin around, land... And then you, as the viewer, will say, oh, my God, that was an amazing thing. And the announcers will say, oh, they'll get no points for that. You're like, why? Why not? It seemed amazing. So then they'll jump, spin in the air, land, and you're you're chastened. You know not to think, oh, that's amazing. But then the announcers will say, amazing. So it's sort of like Trump's State of the Union. Seemed like crap to me, but hold on. The last one seemed like crap. Van Jones liked it. Let's see what the announcers say. It's Van and David Axelrod and Tara Lipinski's in there. Oh, they said it was unhinged. That comports with my perception. But it is odd when they do those jumps that seem perfectly well executed and well beyond the range of what uh, any human you've ever met can do. I mean, at least an attempted dunk in the NBA that doesn't go well. You could watch the ball not go through the basket. You don't need an announcer to tell you that was unsuccessful. But in ice skating, you need the guy who was in the Olympics or the gal who was in the Olympics four or eight years ago to tell you, nope, that was a total disaster. Didn't seem like a total disaster. Seemed like an amazing feat that I wouldn't even think would be possible. Well, in that regard, I guess it's a little like Nancy Pelosi standing on the floor of the house for eight hours in defense of the dreamers. Nope, it means nothing. She'll get no points for that. And there's another thing that goes on in the Olympics that also goes on in the world around us, the world of American politics today. It's that the Russians once again face no consequences. You thought they were going to face consequences. They had a massive government-funded and run cheating operation in Sochi. There was a whistleblower who could have been killed, and there are some pretty strong allegations that some serious retribution has been visited upon some of the Russian whistleblowers. So the IOC said they were going to ban Russia from the Olympics. I'm looking at the screen. There are a lot of Russians. They're not waving the Russian flag. They're not wearing the Russian shirts, which, by the way, are a little itchy. They don't have their textiles down as much as we do. But they're competing, and they're competing under the name or, as in, we could ban them for cheating, or come on in. It's the Russian team. We'll just call it the or team. 
Now, this or is O-A-R, Olympic athletes from Russia. That's why the IOC gave them an or, so they wouldn't rock the boat. Well, why stop here? If you're going to have all the Russians in the Olympics under a team name that's not even Russia, why don't you allow other teams from Russia in the Olympics? You got your curling team, and you got your ice hockey team, and you got your skating pairs team. Why not let Fancy Bear in? Your hacking team, the elite hacking unit. This is true. Hackers have attacked the Olympics, and according to Betsy Cooper, executive director at the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity at UC Berkeley, quoted in the Times, the worst-case scenario would be attacks in which hackers tried to shut off lights in a stadium during the event, okay, or even tampered with electronic timing results. How would that work? I mean, let's say you had the hackers, they were all ready to go, Fancy Bear was in place, and you had a skier come down the slopes, and there's Michaela Schifrin, U.S. gold medal hopeful, and she finishes in 212. And so the next skier comes down. It's a fat guy in a fur hat, and he's hitting all the poles, and he tumbles, and he gets up, and he falls again. And then like eight minutes later, he crosses the finish line. Oh, it's one second faster than Michaela. Like, you don't just have to have a good hacking unit. You've got to have a pretty good skier to convince everyone that she beat Michaela Schifrin or Lindsey Vaughn. And then you know what's going to happen. The team from Orr does win, and then they drape the medal around their necks, and someone sticks a microphone in their face, and they say, was it worth it, all this hard work? And then they will answer, we do not do it for the medals. We just want to talk about adoption. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname is the just producer. He's a dollar-denominated dandy. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, is a triple toe loop of humans. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, knows all the swizzles and some of the twizzles. The gist, we're fun and informative. A veritable biathlon of listening pleasure. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. I mean, I'm old enough to remember a time where I genuinely thought of myself as bipartisan on economic policy. I remember, I'm old enough to remember a time when I thought of you that way as well. And um, <laughs> you went to the University of Chicago. I went when to When we the, say the Chicago school, that was your school. <laughs> that was my school, although I didn't study economics there. But still, 